Are you ready to experience the rich interconnection of spirituality, orientation, and identity? If so, plan to attend Liberating Your Divine Identity, a retreat at Unity Village during Pride Month, June 9th to the 12th. This soul-filled retreat is facilitated by LGBTQIA plus Unity Ministers with workshops and ceremonies to cultivate a deeper awareness of our spiritual nature. Register at unityvillage.org forward slash I am divine 2022. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome to World Spirituality, exploring the unity within all cultures and faith traditions with your host, Reverend Paul John Roach. on the Unity Online Radio Network. Yes, I'm your host, Paul John Roach, coming to you from a cool and very wet Fort Worth, Texas. We've had an enormous amount of rain recently, which is wonderful for Mother Nature, but a little tiresome after a while, but we're not complaining. Uh, Joining me today is author, storyteller, ritual creator, and teacher from Buenos Aires in Argentina, her name is Fabiana Fondavia, and she's the author of a well-researched, deeply spiritual, and actually delightful book entitled Where Wonder Lives, uh, Practices for Cultivating the Sacred in Your Daily Life. Fabiana combines a deep appreciation of nature with dream work and myths, mythic consciousness, archetypal psychology, Holders practices and essential well-being, uh, married with a universal spiritual awareness that's very akin to what we're familiar with in Unity. It's a wonderful read. I highly recommend this book to anybody that wants to get some nurturing in their lives and go deep with some of these ideas. So it's a joy to welcome Fabiana Fondavia to today's show. Welcome. Thank you so much, Paul. That was a lovely and very kind introduction. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, you know, it, it, I, what I loved about the book was it, it was poetic, but also psychological, you know, and it, it was uh, imaginative, but also practical. So it kind of combines both sides of the equation, right? Because you, sometimes you read books and they're too fluffy or whatever. They don't have an underpinning. And then others are too heady, too... Um, but cerebral knowledge, and you don't have that sense of poetry. So it's lovely when when both are combined together because um, it enhances everything. You know, it connects uh, body and soul, right? So we, we are holistic beings, and it, that comes out very much in the book, I think, yeah? Thank you. Yes, that's important for me, too, as a reader. So I'm, I'm happy that it came through that way for you as when you were reading it. Um, I do need to marry the science with the poetics because otherwise some part of me, some essential part of me is left out. So I tried not to do that. And um, yeah, that was part of my purpose in writing. And the book really centers around this uh, this terrain, right? This map that you have um, of the journey that we're all on, yeah? That uh, it has nine realms or, or stages to it. And, and each stage is meaningful in its own right. 
So I thought what we could do was uh, progress through some of these stages. You could tell us about about them and, and why they're meaningful, and uh, you know maybe also how relevant they are in in a in a world right that is um, taken up with so much screen time. You know we spend so much time now um, away from Mother Nature, away from our feelings. Um, uh, in in that sense, we, we we're listening to somebody else's feelings and thoughts sometimes, um, and, and not our own. And it, it's salutary then to get back to the basics. I'm not knocking um, screen time because we wouldn't be on this show unless we had this wonderful mechanism. And, and it's amazing, I think, that you're all the way down there in, in Argentina. You know, we we can chat. This is this is a good part of uh, of cyberspace, mm-hmm. right? But uh, it, it does have its its downsides as well. Exactly. Yes, I agree. But I do think that there's a way to get around the um, limitations of this time and to make the best of them while not losing necessarily what makes us most human. But I do think it takes, as you say, a little bit more of um, not an effort, but a, of, of an intention to do so, because otherwise it's quite easy these days to get caught up in in this very virtual reality, which, again, leaves out some of our most human needs. So, yes, it's a bit of a struggle, but I think it can be done. And I hope this that the chat we're going to have will be an invitation for people to consider many ways of doing that, many ways of getting back home, even uh, when things around us are a little crazy as they are right now. Well, so the first step is, is to head off into the jungle, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that's always the first step for me, because as you said, I'm very much a nature devotee. I think it's more than enthusiasm at this point. It's it's really what my spirituality feeds on daily. So I think returning to nature in a way that reminds us that we that we never really left because we can't be anything but nature, although our awareness can sever that connection if we forget or if we pretend that we're something different that the trees are something that's out there and has nothing to do with me or the wind or the sunshine or the clouds or the birds and all the rest of creation, which we have through many years of very after, I guess, enlightenment thinking and a very rational mindset that has turned everything into objects, the world, the the natural world into objects for our use or our enjoyment, but basically objects. This has given us this this very mistaken notion and feeling that we are somehow apart from the rest of the world. And this, I think, has made us quite ill in many ways and has impoverished our experience of life. So pandemic or not, I think it's crucial that we all go out into nature as much as we can every day. And let me just say that even though I chose to title that chapter The Jungle, because The Jungle to me is one of the most... um, salient or exciting forms of nature where everything is so alive and brimming with with possibilities but really a potted plant is nature is nature enough and looking outside at the sky is um, a very um, powerful way to reconnect with that nature that is a mirror to our inner nature so it doesn't need, you don't need to be to go out into a mountain or to visit the sea to feel that you've come home to yourself in nature. You can walk outside into your yard or stay beside, as I said, a plant in your on your desk and connect with it in a, a nonverbal and heart-to-heart connection. Even though I'm not saying the the plant 
would reciprocate exactly in the same way, but there are languages that are that go beyond our rational language and that we can still partake in. And the same with birds. We have forgotten that at one point we were akin to to birds as many original original people still are, and we could understand not exactly what they are saying to each other moment to moment, but the general uh, idea of what is happening with the birds around us. So by using some techniques and some practices and some teachings from wilderness instructors such as John Young, who has a beautiful book called What the Robin Knows, he teaches what he calls deep bird language, which is really about rejoining the conversation. There's a conversation that's going on outside us all the time, not only between birds, but between birds and insects and plants and trees and the weather. And we, as again, have at some point left that conversation and thought that we were not think sometimes that we're not able to return, like it's something alien to us now. But it doesn't take too much exploration to find our way back. And the jungle, that chapter of the book, has a myriad, um, yeah, many different types of, of ways to reconnect, from working with wild plants and making medicine out of them or eating wild plants once again. Just even recognizing their names makes a huge difference. Walking down the street and instead of thinking, well, that's just a patch of weeds. If you think, oh, that's plantain and that's a dandelion and, and there is a south thistle and all these different, very nutritious and beautiful plants that we normally just walk on, the world slowly begins to become familiar once again instead of an anonymous backdrop. So that's you basically what that, I tried to... Yeah, sorry. Yeah, you, you mentioned in the book, I think, that nature itself comes from the Latin root, meaning, you know, to be birthed, to be born, right? Um, like natal or whatever. And uh, it, so we're all born out of this matrix, right? Out, out, of, out of the earth, if you like. So we, we are exactly. connected with it, whether we think we are or not. You know, that, that we are part of it. And we have a lovely phrase called re-inhabiting the world. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a remembering, isn't it? It's a remembering that we are and always have been connected and... Um, you know the 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 moon moves in our in our blood uh, in in the, the patterns of our lives in a very mm -hmm. real sense, right? We are influenced by these things, and uh, I love what you say about birds. I'm a big birder myself, and um, you know we have numerous birds in our gardens where I live, and it's an endless joy, you know, to to observe them and notice their patterns and the different ones that come in the different seasons and whatnot. It's it's mm -hmm. it's always amazing to me what 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 you see if you pay attention. Exactly, and birds are pretty much well in some places that they're the only kind of wild animal that we still cohabit with that we still live with, um, because dogs and cats, of course, are quite domestic. But birds really will do their thing whether you're there or not. They they pretty much maintain their ways. So studying them and observing them and learning what they're doing and why and what are the daily habits of a bird? And even just one fact that blew my mind when I first found out, which is that birds are territorial animals, and therefore the birds that you see coming across your yard or your home are not random birds. They are always the same birds. They are your neighbors, um, except for migrating birds, who, of course, travel long, long distances. But most of the birds you see are always going to be the same birds. So 
we can take the time to 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 examine them and to see if we can even make out individual birds and and couples and what it what is the offspring and what are they doing and where do they live and where do they nest and what do they feed on all of these questions that shouldn't be theoretical questions they should be explorations such as when we were kids and we were interested and we paid attention i think we need to pay attention again and as you were saying with the word nature, when we talk about the essential nature of a thing or of ourselves, again, we're talking about what is most true, most authentic, most primitive. So we are not in any way apart. And even if we were in a locked up room with with hardly a window to connect us to the outside, we would still be nature because our bodies are nature and the iron in our blood is nature and the light and the warmth and the air that we breathe. So really we are constantly connected, but our minds think otherwise and and, and lead us to think that we are not. And this has caused um, all kinds of trouble that I think in a way with the pandemic um, that has um, forcefully removed us for a long time from the streets and helped some wild animals to return and helped clean the air up to a certain point is an invitation really to rejoin that conversation in a different way from now on, which I really hope we will all heed and and do things differently from now on. Right. They talk about it being the great reset, don't they? And um, we do have that opportunity to, to reset it, but in a different way from what we were doing before. I know some people want it to be all back to normal so that it can rush around like they did in the pre-pandemic oh, times. But uh, I, I, I myself would like to do it a little differently, you know, because I really haven't missed some of the things. I, I mean, not going out to a restaurant really wasn't the problem because I, I, I feel I can cook a healthier and just as nutritious meal, you know, at home. In fact, better than some restaurants. So it, it's like get into the habit of doing things maybe that aren't the best for you. And uh, so the pandemic has, has been an invitation to to look differently. And and, and so it's a, a hidden blessing in in that difficulty. We're not minimizing the, the suffering here. It's been difficult, but uh, it does mm-hmm. give us a, an opportunity. Um, so let, let's move on to the garden, all right? We've been out in the jungle, um, in, into the wild, but the, the garden is symbolically all around us, isn't it? It's not just our, our yard. It, the mm-hmm. garden is our senses, as you put it, and, and exploring the senses. You have some wonderful information about different uh, senses and, and what they're capable of doing, right? And I love this chapter particularly. And you mentioned also there's more than five senses, right? There's other ways that we perceive things. And uh, and we know that animals, for instance, perceive mm-hmm. way beyond the, just the, the five regular senses. But I think we, we can mm-hmm. too. But you do spend a lot of time, you know, talking about, the power of senses and, um, you know, smell, for instance, I think that's a very strong uh, sense mm. that brings us back to times past, right? You just smell something and you're right there back in that time. Exactly. Well, because there's actually neurological reasons for this is because the area that governs memory is close to the area where we register smells. But smells also have a very emo- emotional component. The, the emotional aspect is is what really comes across. It, it's emotions, actually. I think um, that's more proper to say. The emotional, the area of the brain that governs emotions is quite close and triggered easily by smells. So if you smell a perfume that reminds you of your grandmother or a house where you once lived, you were immediately taken back there. Or the smell of fresh bread or of mown grass or of rain 
it has different they have different connotations for each of us but they all bring us out of our isolation and just to contrast our visual sense which is the one we use the most uh, we are very uh, highly visual culture pretty much everywhere today and that's what's most stimulated the the eyes and what we perceive through the eyes is mostly linked to our rational processing so we tend to if you if you look at a room for example i don't know where you're sitting right now but i'm sitting in a very sunny room and if you look around you're going to see the individual objects and you're going to be able to notice the details of everything around you and you will see okay there's a lamp there's a bed there's books but if you close your eyes and you walk around the same room with your eyes closed feeling your way through you are going to get a whole more information coming from all the different senses from from touch mostly but also from the temperature which is another um we have temperature receptors and light receptors and all of that is is central information as well so one one practice that i have my students do or did when when our classes weren't virtual is we would walk into a room with our eyes closed and just go around it by touch and notice the difference between walking in with our eyes closed or with our, our eyes opened and what everybody describes when their eyes are closed is a much more intimate experience it's much more embodied it's much more immediate everything is close the textures are clear the the um, the density of things so but again your eyes set you kind of a, as a at a remove you see things from a distance and it's very much a subject object relationship when you're looking at something whereas when you're smelling or hearing or tasting everything quickly becomes more more a part of you of your immediate experience so i think it's interesting that we sort of try to enrich our sensual experience of life beyond the eyes beyond the eyesight and now with computers and and screens taking up so much of our time it's especially important that we give more time to the other senses in fact there's an author that says that perhaps maybe part of the reason that we are such avid eaters that we eat sometimes without even being hungry or 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 needing to eat is maybe because the rest of our sensual experience is so impoverished is so poor we don't have we don't create um homes that are necessarily or offices that are that give us a lot of sensual opportunities to enjoy the other senses so we immediately go to the one that's that's most um accessible which is taste there's always something to eat but if we paid attention i don't know if you're familiar with the term probably yes biophilia this idea of loving what is alive loving nature the people that are exploring biophilic design or architecture are bringing a lot more textures and natural colors and um shapes that we like that are naturally attractive to us such as round shapes because that makes us it sets it puts us at ease and we don't need to eat so much or to be so stressed out when our surroundings invite another kind of experience from a sensual point of view so yeah, um, like that mm-hmm. you can you can relate to this <laughs> yeah i was going to say a couple of things um you know you mentioned that we we um filter out a lot of things if we're familiar with the environment for instance we don't see it anymore i think that happens mm-hmm. in relationships too we you know we're so familiar with our partners perhaps we don't really take a good look at them you know and that's that me that's a good thing in a sense it means i'm very familiar and i feel connected it's a bad thing in the sense that sometimes you don't notice what's there to notice and uh, so it it's good to to use the you know like you said if you close your eyes you can feel it 
feel the room better than if your eyes are open simply because we don't notice things. They're, they're filtered. We have to filter because, you know, you can't take everything in. The universe mm -hmm. provides us with a, an incredible multiplicity of things to see, right, or to experience, and we can't see it all. But, uh, you know, we can open the aperture a, a little wider. The other thing that came to me was, uh, in our modern society, you know, smells, for instance, often a suspect. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we filter out, we, we, or we put down smells. I, I remember mm -hmm. uh, when I was a kid and growing up in Britain, and we only took a, a bath once a week, you know. We were probably stinky. Mm -hmm. We always washed under our armpits, or, but, uh, <laughs> but not not much else. And and uh, when I first came to the states, and everybody's showering three times a day or whatever, and it was a whole different <laughs> world. Um, but uh, you know, I think you mentioned that. Uh, yeah, was it Napoleon asked uh, Josephine yes. not to, not to bathe until he got back from the war zone? And, uh, <laughs> My goodness, you know, that would not go down too well today, would it? But uh, but you know, back in the day, you know, the, the, the people enjoyed the bodily odors of, of their, their loved ones. So it wasn't, it wasn't exactly. a particular problem, yeah? It's a very different mm -hmm. worldview than what we have today, where, you know, we've got to be clean all the time. Otherwise, uh, whoops, it's, it's a bad thing. That's true, but it's not even clean. It's you. You, you need. Uh, there's an expectation that everything should smell almost artificially good because we've gotten so used to artificial smells and our cleaning products and shampoos, and so it's not even. You don't need to wear perfume. There's always some kind of an artificial smell going around, and we've gotten unused to natural human smells, which don't necessarily have to be bad, but it's just a cultural concept that everything should smell like lemon or pine tree and. That really robs our experiences, again, of more subtle um, connections, where, in fact, our unconscious mind does pick up other kinds of um, olfactory cues. Um, for example, people who are sick give off a specific kind of smell, according to the kind of illness, and women in heat. And, I mean, there's, there's different kinds of cues that are very unconscious, but at a conscious level, we tend to recoil, as you said, from any smell that is natural, primitive, and I think in a way that reminds us of our animal nature. I think part of the rejection comes from the fact that it reminds us that we're basically animals, that we're not so different from the rest of the animals that surround us because we have the same bodily needs, because we sweat and there's a certain smell to that sweat, and we'd rather pretend that we're above that. So yes, there's a, a bit of a cultural bias there that I think we should rethink. And, and also yeah. it's... Um, and, and, and also to begin to re to restore our senses to the very nuanced smells, such as the smell of rain or humidity in the air and um, of just the different aspects of nature that we just stroll by without stopping to, to take notice right. of. Right. There's a famous instance of uh, when the tsunami was coming across the uh, Indian Ocean, you know, the some of the... Mm -hmm quote, primitive people that lived on, on the islands in the middle of the ocean knew, knew the tsunami was coming long before it, it arrived because they were wow. sensitive to the changes in the, the atmosphere and whatnot, and they'd moved to higher ground. Whereas the mm -hmm. more advanced people in that area, uh, quote, advanced, you know, were not aware of it, and, and they, they were taken unawares. Um, and mm -hmm. suffered a lot of damage and, and death. And I think that's, again, you know, indicative of what we're talking about is that those seemingly primitive societies were highly attuned, right, to, to Mother Nature, where we've lost that. 
Mm-hmm. Yes, but we can get it back. That's the most important part. I, I think it's it's all a question of how much we want to devote our time and our attention to these other, these more animal um, aspects of our, our, our being. And all of our senses, again, give us a much more enriched experience that if we remain inside inside our minds and inside just looking out from 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 our heads, so to speak, as if we were totally constantly processing information instead of receiving it in a more bodily way. And, and um, talking and, about and, and, that, you know, yeah. well, in the next the next stage is the river which you associate mm-hmm. with imagination, right? Which again is mm-hmm. something very different from intellectual knowledge. And uh, you, you uplift uh, imagination is a very important quality, right? Because it has no limit, does it? What you can imagine, what you can craft. And imagination mm-hmm. is linked to imaging, isn't it? To, to build something out of the, the ethers, if you like. and. Anything, it seems, that is of value comes that way, out of the seeming emptiness, right? And, and uh, you know, an empty page, and then you've written something, um, an empty mm-hmm. canvas, uh, the silence before a concert. Uh, you know, all these things come fr- uh, from the imaginative flow um, out of the mystery, which is a very intelligent mystery, isn't that? We're in touch with, through intuition, we're in touch with a greater intelligence than we could imagine. Mm, right. Yes. Well, pretty much everything that exists was imagined by somebody before it came to being. So mm-hmm. sometimes we have the, the faulty notion that we came into the world and it was already there, made and finished for us to enjoy or, or, or deal with. But we don't realize that the world is, in fact, constantly evolving and constantly creating itself, recreating itself. And so are we. We could not be less creative than the than the universe that created us so and that we're a part of so whether we are doing this intentionally or not we are in fact using our imagination all the time even the people who consider themselves unimaginative and very rational are always interpreting the world the world is not as it is it is as we see it so the stories that we tell ourselves regarding what is going on are or almost all i mean at least partially part of what we imagine the, the way that we um, see a story developing is a part and parcel of our imagination. So what I'm suggesting is that we cultivate it as we did as children and give ourselves a lot more um, leeway, a lot more freedom to play around with our imagination and to recreate our lives um, in a more playful manner. If I had to sum it up, that's that's what I would say, because there's always more possibilities than we first envision or imagine when we go at them in a in a very um, linear way, which is the way we've been taught. Because the what again, our culture has leaned towards a very rational, linear, um, utilitarian way of, of looking at things. And I think what is coming up now very strongly is the need to uh, redress the balance and return Absolutely. to a more. To, to what is called the feminine, the sacred feminine, which is... I'm hearing the, the music, of... which means we got to stop. Sorry to cut you off, but we have to get to sure. the break. Um, I'm with sure. uh, Fabiana. We now return to World Spirituality with Reverend Paul John Roach. All right, welcome back to today's show. I'm with Fabiana Fondavia. We're talking about her lovely book, 
where Wanda lives, practices for cultivating the sacred in your daily life. I don't know if we're going to get through the whole book because it's so fascinating. We're only on stage three and there's nine stages, but that's okay. It doesn't matter. We don't have to do everything. I think you're getting a, an insight into the variety that's, that's being offered here. But we're going to shift to stage four, uh, which is the mountaintop, or telling a new story. You know, when we get to the mountaintop symbolically, there's greater perspective. We can see things more clearly, right? There's, um, there's clarity. Uh, when we're down below, it's, it, it's often confusing. But from that mountaintop view, there, there, there's this, this expansiveness, this spaciousness. And, and you talk about uh, the mountaintop being sort of a mythic place, right, where, where we create our own personal mythology. When people hear the word myth these days, they say, oh, that's another word for a lie. You know, it's a myth. It's not true, which is so sad, isn't it? Because myths and the world's myths, and you talk about Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey, it's so meaningful. Mm -hmm. they, they are symbolic stories of our own journey through life, right? Uh, these various aspects of, of our being, and they have wonderful things to, to teach us. And it's it's sad that it's being downgraded, if you like, to, to the idea of uh, just a fairy tale or whatever. And then even fairy tales are fascinating too, but we just say, oh, that's just a fairy tale. I, I used to do a series of uh, metaphysical teachings on fairy tales when I when I was a minister of the church, and and everybody found them quite fascinating. So we we again thank you for bringing those back into discussion. That there's this can be a rich way of understanding ourselves. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, yes, it's a little bit the same uh, explanation as what we were discussing earlier. Our world has become so linear and, and logical in its inclinations that the whole, what, what we used to call mythos, which is M-Y-T-H-O-S, the, the, to oppose, to um, differentiate it from logos, which is reason or logic or even vision, um, has really led us astray from this huge dimension of our lives, which once took place around campfires where we would tell each other stories to understand what life was about and what it was to be a good human being and how to get along with others and um, how to relate to nature and, and to whatever image or, or um, understanding of God each people had. So we've lost that and we definitely have no more um, universal myths left or, or the, the few that we have are not necessarily very productive or, or creative. But what we do have now instead is the possibility of creating or exploring our own personal mythologies. Because in a way, since we some, several of the functions that myth used to uh, fulfill, such as telling us what life was about, as I said, well, Campbell mentioned four uh, functions of myth, Joseph Campbell. No? So one was the mystical function, was to, which was to reconcile our consciousness to the laws of the land, to the laws of life, the fact that, li that life ends, that there is death, the fact that we have to eat other lives in order to survive, whether animal or vegetable. So that was the first function. Then there was a sociological function, or actually first was the, the second was the cosmological function, which is to understand the way the world works. Um, the third was sociological, how we should relate to each other. And then the fourth was the psychological um, function, which was how to go from one stage of life to another, how to become, you know, stop being a child and become an adolescent and then a young person and then and all the way up until elderhood and death. 
Now, several of these functions have been taken up, taken up by other institutions. So the cosmological is now explained by science. We don't need to wonder, so to speak, how the world works because science tells us how it works. The sociological function, in a way, has been taken up by political institutions. We don't look, we don't ask ourselves how we should govern ourselves according to, you know, looking into our into our inner realm, but it's rather set out, it's, it's, it's agreed upon um, rationally, and we have laws and we have institutions that would uphold those laws. And the last function is now mainly uh, in the area of psychologists or priests or clergymen and others that help us through. So we have sort of displaced myth from that very important place in our lives. But the first um, function of myth and the fourth one also somehow, somewhat, are still uh, very much up in the air. There's no science to explain to us what really what life is ultimately about or how to relate to mystery. So we're still on our own there and also how to face death in the, in, in the fourth function as well. So we need, we don't, we're not um, beyond myth. We think we are and thus we equate it with, with um, silly stories or with lies. But really, we're always telling ourselves stories, whether we are there, they may be better stories and more functional stories or more dysfunctional and disruptive stories. But we're, all, we're always telling ourselves what life is about and what we should be concerned with and what is important and what is not and who's right and who's wrong. So it's important to become more aware of what kind of stories we're telling. And then there's a whole idea of archetypes, which are these images and energies that inhabit our collective unconscious and are always, again, pulsing through us and acting through us. And if we don't, uh, if we're not aware of them, they don't disappear. They just become more unconscious and act, let, let's say it this way, instead of we acting them out, they act us out. So, so instead of, for example, using warrior energy to fight a good battle against, I don't know, an unjust system or or to fight a disease, we can become we can become convinced that we are warriors, and suddenly all the world becomes one large uh, battlefield. That's because we don't realize that this is just an energy moving through us. We sort of let it take over us. So the whole area of uh, storytelling and myth is quite an important one for us to explore, and a very generative one. If we can um, use some of the practices that I and other authors present. We can go back to the idea of choosing or designing or creating a myth that is functional, healthy, and um, mostly that frees us to live our best life. You know, I've been uh, st uh, studying the Royal Marines recently for some reason. Uh, I've been watching a few uh, shows about them and their history and whatnot. And, uh, you know, talking about warriors, they're, they're highly trained to to be very uh, effective in, in what they do. But I noticed that they have a, an ethos that uh, with, with eight qualities that they follow. And, and I was thinking how close those are to spiritual qualities, you know, and that, that the, uh, the, the dedication and discipline of a monk, for instance, or a spiritual aspirant is not dissimilar to, you know, an elite soldier who is, um, you know, training to, to, for a particular task. So, some of the qualities are things like excellence and dedication, cheerfulness under pressure and, and uh, unselfishness and et cetera, um, courage. Mm -hmm. and, and I thought, you know, those are wonderful qualities that I might want to embody myself, you know, in on my journey, on my mythic journey through life. 
And so, so we're mm. all in this together, right? It shows up wherever we are, whether we're an elite soldier or, or whether we're opening to the, the wonders of, um, of nature, you know, as, as we are in this book. It's, it's the same, essentially, isn't it? Where there's a commonality, which is quite, quite interesting. It is, it is. But at the same time, the, the soldier is a good example to, to show what an archetype, um, an archetypal imagery or, or energy offers us and what the dangers can be. For example, if a soldier is acting soldierly in a, on a battlefield or as he goes about his professional life, then that is all well and good. That is what he's supposed to be doing. But if he were to come home and treat his wife and his children as a soldier, that might not work out so well because that that's when it, that's a time for lover energy, fatherly, motherly, caretaker energy, which is another archetype altogether. So we need to be able to put on these suits in a way. They're a little bit like suits and take them off when it's appropriate to don something else, mm -hmm. to realize that we are not a warrior or a hero or a mother uniquely, but these are just energies moving through us and we can, um, and we can govern them, govern them as long as we're conscious of them. If we are aware of them, if we're not, they become, they take over our lives pretty much and, and many, and many times wreck them. So well, I, th um, I think that's an excellent point Fabiana, because so often we do get lost in our roles, don't we? And, um, we have to defend them, you know, we, can, we can't let them go. And uh, that's sad, you know, it's, it's sad that we can't uh, be more than just one particular um, persona. Mm -hmm. Right, and we've seen many, for example, rock stars and actors really just get um, extinguished, get, get um, their lives derailed or even die because their personas were so... Um, omnipresent they just could not shake them off and all the, the the people's projections people only saw them as a sex symbol or a star or and so they became only that you know like paper figures and we are so much more complex than than that all of us so really this chapter like all the others what is what it's trying to do what i, I was trying to do is to open up um a rich array of possibilities and to know that there are many different characters in us and we have to be able to contact them and to let them um, develop and flourish in our lives we don't need to marry a single story even if we've had a difficult one like we've suffered abuse or any kind of trauma we need to know that we are more than our trauma more than the abuse we suffered more than a certain character that we were in our family growing up there is so much more available for each of us and that's what mythic consciousness can help us see, because as you said, metaphorically or symbolically, when you climb a mountain, you see things with perspective. And we do need perspective daily in our lives. Otherwise, we get sort of swallowed up by our little concerns or very individual, uh, you know, happening seems to be the most important thing in the world or seems um, un unsolvable. And when you have a little, we, when you take a heightened perspective, everything looks different. Everything falls into place differently. And you know you have more resources available. Right. And then, you you know, you get that perspective and that openness and maybe that enlightened moment, the epiphany. You think, oh, everything's <laughs> going to be plain sailing. And the next thing you know, you're not on the mountaintop. You're down in the swamp. And that, that's stage five, right? The swamp <laughs> of, of our shadow. And, you know, usually if you set yourself up too much, you know, I remember what my wife and I used to say, man, we're getting on great. This is lovely. 
Next thing you know, we'd be in a vicious argument the very same day. It's it's almost as if you're better, you know, be careful what you ask for because you're going to get it. Um, and if you ask for sweetness and light, then the, the you know the the opposite of that, the yin to the yang uh, arises because it's bound to right. It's testing whether you really have got it or not. So yeah, the swamp's no fun though, is it? And but it is important to look at the shadow. Yes, yeah, you know, I know some people just want to stay jolly and the firm things and, and that living positivity all the time. We have that danger sometimes in unity and new thought. But it's it's really important to look at the dark stuff and not be afraid of it and not try and deny it either. Yes, especially because when you look deeply and you work with your shadow, what you find there mostly is gold. This is a, something that Carl Jung, the, the, the psychiatrist, the Swiss psychiatrist, used to say that 90% of our shadow is gold. That which we fear most about ourselves and, and that which we spend our lives trying to hide when looked at in the right light, when embraced, when explored lovingly, it really helps us come around to what is most true about us. And it frees up so much energy that we use to try to keep down those, those you know, air quotes, um, shameful aspects of ourselves. Really what is in our shadows is mostly quite innocent stuff that we simply had to turn away from because of our cultural heritage, because of our family history, um, a lot of qualities that go into our shadow um, are not shadowy at all, for example, just to to make it clear. What a shadow, what psychological shadow is, is just those aspects of ourselves that we cannot or, or don't see as part of ourselves. So we disown them. We say, you know, angry? I'm not angry. I don't feel angry. Uh, I hardly ever feel anger. And of course, there's always anger for everybody in some way. So if I have, a tr- have trouble expressing anger or I don't even see the possibility of getting angry, then for some reason I have put, I have placed my anger in my shadow. And there may be good reasons for that. I may have had a very authoritarian father or mother and anger was not allowed. And if I got angry, bad things happened. So I had to always be, if it's a woman, you know, good girl and and sweet and, and kind. And so the shadow contains my anger. Now, this is not a good thing because we need anger to get through life. We need all our emotions. Anger is um, the, the sort of the frontline emotion when our boundaries are crossed. So if somebody is doing things that you don't agree with or you don't feel comfortable with and you can't say anything, then that churning energy becomes toxic to yourself and eventually to others. So we need to get to pull that anger out of our, of our shadow, of that sort of basement that lives inside us and look at it in, in clear daylight and what first might seem like a monster, like there's something there that I can't even begin to look at because it's been repressed so long that now it feels like there's a monster inside me. But when you take it out, it's just natural emotion like like anger. And you can reuse, you can re um, repurpose it to the... And almost any emotion can be in your shadow and almost all of it, when you bring it out of the swamp and you look at it, you realize that you need that to live. It's just you were just looking at it in the wrong way. You were you were seeing it in its um, most um, in its darker darker aspects. And then, of course, there's all the aspects of ourselves that are not socially approved. And um, for example, children uh, 
can talk about their bodily functions and can do all kinds of things that adults can't because it's not socially accepted and we have to wear certain clothes and speak a certain way and all of this is also in our shadows there's a lot of us that are just that is just repressed because it's not socially approved and a lot and some of that sometimes takes away some of our more um wild and free energy if there's too much if we're too civilized for our own good there are there are excesses of civilization that make us sort of shameful about just very natural humanly animal aspects of, of our bodies and our lives and of course sexuality is is mostly in our shadow for a lot of us because of different influences religions that have not um uh approved of them or have sent them, um, have, have seen them in, in, uh, in a sinful light or um, cultural um, constructs that have made them shameful, certain kinds of sexualities shameful. So again, that also has to be dealt with. So it's a very scary place to go to, but it's very um, transformative when we do. As you say, the, the key mechanism for detecting your shadow is to see what you're projecting on others, right? Because if you name it in somebody else, you can claim it in yourself, right? Because the very things that we dislike about the people are probably the shadow parts of us that we have yet to, to reconcile and free. And, and so it's, it's, it's not much fun when you do that, you know, when you realize, oh gosh, I don't like their habit because I have a, a equally difficult thing within me that I may be denying. Um, but it's mm -hmm. it's salutary though, isn't it, to see it, you know, to own it, and uh, uh, rather than blame it on somebody else. And we see this happen all, all over the place where people project things onto others. Unfortunately, we see it in our political world too, where you know each side uh, projects onto the other the, the qualities they have within themselves. Um, but we certainly see it personally within within our own being and. But that, it's, it is gold, ultimately. It's, it's a gift, isn't it, to see, be able to see it, to bring it out into the light, you know? Right, because it's the gift of wholeness. It's the gift of truth. And mostly, even though it's uncomfortable at first, when you first discover that there's a shadow component to something that irritates you in another person, for example, one of the, the main keys to shadow is irritation. When something about another person it's not just that you disapprove of it or you're not especially fond of that aspect of that person, but it irritates you. It makes your teeth grind. Um, that is a, is a, is a clue as a very clear sign of shadow. Otherwise, if there was not something living inside yourself, then you would just say, okay, you know, I might not find that the completely, um, I wouldn't approve completely of that, or I don't think it's the best thing to do, but it doesn't get me all riled up. If it gets you riled up, then there's something there for you to look at. And what's there for you to look at is not necessarily what you're seeing in the outside world exactly. Let me explain that because it's, sometimes it causes some confusion. For example, if I, I don't know, I'm going to work and I, I see people sunbathing on, in, a, in a park and I say, oh my God, these people, don't they have something to do? Shouldn't they be at work? How, come, how can they be lazy like that? That does not mean that secretly I want to spend all day lazing out in the sun, but it probably does mean that I could take a little bit more time to rest, that I could give myself a bit of a, of a longer leash as far as my work, and I could take more breaks and I could see, see the sun than I do. So seeing that image of somebody that is so carefree and so 
um, enjoying life while I don't allow myself to do it at all, then that will get me, that will get my shadow going and I will be angry at them. So when I can see what it really is, that it's as innocent as I need a break, I need to take more breaks, then you can own it and you can enrich your life and you stop hiding things from yourself that make you sick. So it's 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 not just healthy, it's also very liberating. There's a feeling yes. of release, of, of, of uh, relief, really, when you come to see what your shadow is really made of and you well, allow the space in your life. Yes, I agree. For me, it's the idea that I'm taking back my power, right? We, we, we act in a disempowered way where we're giving our energy and power to others or to situations. And when we can do this work, we're, we're literally taking it back and therefore we become masters of our destiny in a way that, you know, is, is very powerful. And, and, and that's wonderful. That's wonderful work. I, we're at that's that stage uh, five. We got four other stages. I'll mention them quickly because we're really out out of time. Um, the sixth one is the village, which is our uh, deepening our relationships. Stage seven, the fire, reclaiming our rituals and rites of passage, uh, which can be quite powerful. Uh, stage eight is the lighthouse, the, the the meditative part of ourselves, the the ability to be focused and mindful. And then finally, which I, I love, the ocean, uh, opening our heart in all ways, uh, deepening, exploring um, all the various components of our being. And, and really that oceanic awareness, right, that spaciousness, it, it returns us to the, you know, the womb, to, to the cosmic womb as well, the, the, the nature of God, you know, as that limitlessness. Um, if you've got one thing you would like to convey from those last stages uh, to us mm -hmm. because like i said we're unfortunately at the end of the show we need another hour um what would it be uh fabiana what, what would you like to share okay well i think i would like to end with the expansive emotions or the essential emotions that i portray in the ocean in the last chapter which is really the area of the heart um all emotions are important as i mentioned before but there are certain some kinds of emotions such as all wonder, gratitude, generosity, compassion, forgiveness, the, the deeper emotions, the ones that are closest, mostly ingrained in our hearts, that I think is what makes us most human. And when we can tap into them voluntarily, instead of just waiting for them to, to appear from whatever is going on outside, then we can begin to live a more intentionally loving life and, and, and to feel that expansion that those emotions bring to our to our to our daily experience and mostly wonder which is that's the reason that i titled the book that way wonder which is the conception or the the perception of something that is so vast that we can't comprehend it with our uh, linear rational minds but rather we have to make room for it in our hearts that aspect of life that is so natural to us as children i think we can voluntarily intentionally rekindle as adults and that makes all the difference at least it has in my life so I, if, if there's one thing that people take away from the book i hope it's that the decision to live in wonder every day and I there's so it. many I ways to do that hmm. i love that phrase intentionally loving life uh let me hmm. let me uh, tell folks about next week's show and then we'll have our final thoughts before the end and next week metaphysician um radio host writer and healer Erica Longden joins me, and she's going to share her knowledge of sonic vitamins or vitamins uh, using tuning forks, singing bowls, chakras, uh, chakra chants, angelic 
vibrations and other sound therapies. So it's a nice piggyback on some of the things we've talked about today. So join me for that. So what's next for you, Fabiana? Well, I'm writing a second book, which is kind of a continuation of this one. And right. I'm teaching my first English workshops. I've teach workshops in Spanish for many years. I'm teaching my first long workshop in English. It's actually a year-long course called Be the Light. And if anybody's right. interested in joining a, a lovely group, international group that's taking with me, they can come to my website, which is fabianafondevilla.com and slash English. And you can find all the information there. It will be lovely to have you. Awesome. And get this book, folks. It's published by Findhorn Press, but it's available on Amazon and all the usual outlets. I highly recommend it. I'm giving it to my wife because I want her to read it. It's going to be right up her alley, too. Um, but it's yeah. been a joy to joy to have uh, you on, on the show today, Fabiana. Thank you so much. Thank you, Paul. It was really lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much. And thanks to everybody for tuning in to this voice of an awakening world. Um, give us a donation if you'd like to keep these uh, this show and other shows on the air. We're grateful for your presence with us and hope to, you'll join us next week. All right. Bye-bye now. Take care. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Are you ready to experience the rich interconnection of spirituality, orientation, and identity? If so, plan to attend Liberating Your Divine Identity, a retreat at Unity Village during Pride Month, June 9th to the 12th. This soul-filled retreat is facilitated by LGBTQIA plus Unity Ministers with workshops and ceremonies to cultivate a deeper awareness of our spiritual nature. Register at unityvillage.org forward slash IMDivine2022. 